When a sexy new actor rolls into town to play the role of leading man, he takes his act off stage and into the bedroom of every woman in Miami. While Sophia is off serving pirate food and pirate fashion, the girls all fall under the spell of Patrick Vaughn. Will the non-speaking townsfolk speak out against Patrick's indiscretions? Will Dorothy still have enough contact solution? Does Blanche's Iris pickup line always work that well? All of that and more in today's episode, The Actor. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. arriving at the house in a taxi that just pulled into the driveway. We don't know just yet, but what we do know is Dorothy has been inspired by the guest transportation and in her yellow sweater vest with a white undershirt and tan pants is giving us taxi cab for the runway. As Dorothy meanders through the living room before picking a magazine, we see it's Sophia who has arrived via cab. Using a raincoat as a blanket and waddling across the room like E.T., Sophia is clearly hiding something. One of those somethings is a saber, which is peeking out from under the coat. Versions of sabers have been around since the ancient Egyptians, but the curve, which makes a saber a saber, came into common usage in the 8th century. No, it's not that Sophia has messed up her blood pressure medication, causing an adverse side effect. It is, in fact, a sword being hidden as Sophia is wearing the very costumey uniform of her new place of work, Captain Jack's Seafood Shanty. Unfortunately, there isn't a Captain Jack's Seafood Shanty in Florida, but there is a Captain's Tavern in Miami and a Captain Jack's Seafood Buffet in Myrtle Beach. The coastal pirates of old, visitors and locals alike can't wait to get to Captain Jack's Seafood Buffet. Captain Jack knows seafood. He knows beef. He knows what you're hungry for. Are you ready for all-you-can-eat lobster and crab legs? You'll love our raw and steam bar, endless pasta station, succulent choice of cuts of meat. You'll enjoy our prime rib carving station. Desserts made fresh daily. Dine with him just once and you'll come back to Captain Jack's. Sounding like Estelle may have had a cold at filming, Sophia explains she got the job because she needs the money and her weekly allowance not only doesn't pay enough, but has Sophia feeling like a child, like she's Dennis the Menace. Dennis the Menace was created in 1951 by Hank Ketchum. This was after his young son was declared a menace by his wife. The pain in the butt character jumped from comic strip to advertising spokeskid, movies, and TV shows, tormenting his neighbor, Mr. Wilson, through all of it. Was Dennis the Menace the Dairy Queen? He was up until 2003, but they stopped because they felt that younger generations could not relate to who he was. 
Dennis the Hoonis? Exactly. <laughs> Did you ever like Dennis the Menace, the movie? Because there was that movie with Walter Matthau in the 90s. Oh, yeah. I believe I saw that in the theater with my grandmama. Of course. And I, you know, thinking I was a little too old to do, be doing that. Yes. <laughs> By the time that came out, I think you were out of the age range. But were you a fan of his at all as a kid? I think I was into it because of Walter Matthau. I, I, he... <laughs> then, yes, you were too old to see it in the theater. <laughs> with my grandma <laughs> 12 year old Josh can we go see that new Walter Matthau picture I'm such a big fan of the grumpy the grumpy old men series <laughs> Not, I'm not a fan of Dennis the Menace but I do love Walter Matthau <laughs> yeah oops <laughs> I never liked him because he was a troublemaker. It made me stressed out. I don't like a kid running around with a slingshot and yeah, no one's he's armed. No one's doing anything about it. No. And he's just in trouble left and right. And I'm like, hey, man, you're ruining it for the rest of us. Grubby little jerk. So what we're saying is we were cool kids. I'm like, follow the rules. And you're like, ooh, Walter Matthau. <laughs> Dorothy doesn't care about the money issue. She cares about the fact that her mother, who at 81, shouldn't be working at a fast food restaurant. She knows how difficult it is to be a server, and she won't allow her mother to do it. And if she does, it's back to the home. Since Morley Safer was a journalist and reporter on 60 Minutes for decades, it is possible he came upon Shady Pines while doing a deep investigation on the horrors of nursing homes. Wearing her same pink outfit from when she was in the waiting room during Stan's surgery last episode, Blanche and floral pastel dress wearing Rose come elening, I mean bursting, through the door. Nothing you can do could make it any worse. Their excitement is palpable as Blanche hops on the couch and tells Dorothy they have exciting news about the upcoming local play. Disappointed by all of the previous performances, all by the neighborhood Meryl Streep, Phyllis Hammerow, who isn't all she's cracked up to be, Dorothy refuses to get excited with the girls. Seeing as she's the second highest Oscar-winning actor of all time and most nominated with 21, Meryl Streep, along with her 386 other nominations, I can only expect Phyllis Hammerow to be amazing. But it sounds like she might not be a fan favorite since everyone was rooting for her to be caught by the Nazis during her performance as Anne Frank. But the news is different this year. Sure, Phyllis will be involved, but not as the lead. That will be going to the actor of all actors, the stars of all stars, Mr. Patrick Vaughn. Dorothy's expression changes immediately, and she is no longer bored by Phyllis, but in near shock with Patrick. As her voice gets louder and higher, she can't help but spill all of her feelings for the man. For years, she's found him to be the sexiest man on television, causing a major crush. That's fine for Dorothy, but for the folks at People magazine, it was St. Elsewhere lead Mark Harmon who was named not only the sexiest man on television, but the sexiest man alive in 1986. Yeah, that guy from NCIS, Sexiest Man Alive. I don't know if it was the same summer, but Mark Harmon starred in a film called Summer School, directed by Carl Reiner, I believe. That was a McCullough family favorite. Oh. I think it was just me. <laughs> but he is very charming, very cute, very tan, very surfy. And he's f so flirty with uh, Kirstie Alley, who's a fellow teacher. He's like the cool 
the cool teacher who's like, man, I got to teach summer school. <laughs> Mr. Shoop. And uh, yeah, Kirstie Alley plays another teacher and she's at her foxiest. It's great. Oh, yeah. And let me guess. She's like had it. She's a, she's like the straight and narrow and like we're here to teach the children. But he teaches her to loosen up and she teaches him to settle down. Yes. Did I get it? Yes. Yes. It's the movie that introduced me to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's a sequence about that movie that's really great. Oh, cool. How random. Mark so, Harmon. Check it out. <laughs> he also was in the Presidio. Hagendaz, or Dagen Hayes, as my grampy always called it, has been around since 1960. And despite its St. Olafian inspired sounding name, Hagendaz is actually complete nonsense. Are you ready for these fun facts, Coco? The ice cream was created by two Jewish-Polish immigrants who met and were married in the Bronx, Reuben and Rose Mattis. Reuben had been working with his uncle to sell sweet treats since he was 10, so the ice cream game was not new to him. But after the Second World War, when he and Rose decided to create and sell their ice cream, they just created the words haagen as a tribute or thank you to Denmark for their treatment of Jews during the war. That thank you came in the form of the Danish-sounding haagen be careful, Rose. Ice cream melts at only 10 degrees Fahrenheit, so don't get too worked up. Ice cream melts at 10 degrees Fahrenheit? Yeah. How's that possible? Isn't freezing 32? Yeah, but it's like I looked at it a long time because it's so that's when it like starts to melt. It can so it needs to be at like zero. Oh, but it'll hold at like a 32 or whatever. It'll hold, but not great. I gotcha. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah, I was reading all about like ice melting temperatures and it's different water is different than ice cream and the sugars and milk and that's why they say serve it at like five degrees it's crazy coming through now donning a feathered tricorn hat sophia is off to work but i thought she had just come home from work perhaps she was high oh yeah did you say tricorn or tricorner Tricorn. Oh, is it called a tricorn? Mm-hmm. Neat. Fun. Yeah. F- Ooh, additional fun <laughs> fact. <laughs> you sound like Dorothy. <laughs> I, I got real excited about a hat. <laughs> well, I can ask your opinion on this because it's like very sitcom time. She just pulled up in a cab and they don't really acknowledge the cab. And she's dressed in the costume. And she said, I went and got a job. Then she goes in her room, puts on the hat and then says, well, I'm off to work. But she just got home. So had she like gone to an interview, gotten hired, given the outfit and told to go home, but then right back? Do we ever see her working? Is there any work done by her on that in that job? No. And I think it was kind of, um, you know, last week Rose was kind of not really in the episode. And the way Estelle sounds like she maybe is sick. I'm wondering if they just Uh, were like, they wrote her out. You know what? We'll just write a little bit more time with the girls, with the actor and you can just uh, take it easy. But I do wish we saw her slinging some shrimp around in her little getup. Well, yeah, I was just wondering if it was because my my initial thought was that it was a ruse of some sort. Oh, there is yeah. no shanty. There that's, is no job. That's it's very something she would do. Some sort of con. Yes. It, it started out as a goof on a bum. <laughs> and it's just spiraled out of control. She does love goofing bums. Someone who isn't confused is Dorothy, who demands her mother stay home and says Sophia will have a job over her dead body. Forgetting her mother is now armed, that threat is met with the threat of violence at the end of Sophia's saber. Annoyed, Dorothy gives in, but before Sophia can get out the door, Rose, recognizing the outfit, asks if it's from CJSS, Captain Jack's seafood shanty. Seizing a moment of opportunity, Sophia clarifies, no, it's not a uniform, I'm discovering the Strait of Magellan. 
The Strait of Magellan is named after its discoverer, the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan. It's located in South America near the southern tip of Chile and is a critical crossing point from the Atlantic to Pacific Ocean. Sophia's shrimp shanty outfit, while over the top, is possibly something old Magellan would have considered pairing with his poofy pants and floppy hats. Ooh la la, it's the community playhouse. And inside we find Blanche in one of her favorite outfits, the teal multifaceted dress with the dropped waist, joined by Dorothy in her new version of her art smock animal print large bib collar shirt. The pair are putting together the green room for their special guest. Sure, buying champagne at two for seven is pretty cheap, especially since the average bottle today costs about 44 bucks. But let me tell you, I am not a drinker, but the few times I've had a sip of champagne, I found the cheaper ones are always better. As the ladies wrap up their finishing touches on the room, we learn Patrick will be there any moment, so when there's a knock at the door, they turn from golden girls to giddy girls. Sadly, when Dorothy answers it, she's left greeting Mr. Ma instead of Mr. Vaughn. On her way to work, Sophia wanted to meet the big actor man, but demanding Dorothy won't let her stay because she looks like Vasco da Gama. Like his fellow Portuguese Magellan, Vasco da Gama was a highly celebrated explorer and was the first European to reach India via the sea. And just like Ferdinand, he probably would have dug Sophia's outfit. With a step into the room, donning a navy suit, light blue shirt, and ascot, Patrick appears and takes the air out. Dorothy freezes, giving us a throwback to her Burt Reynolds moment. Rose goes into shock, covering her mouth, and Blanche goes into heat, nearly ripping her clothes off. So let us allow himself to introduce himself. Lloyd Bachner, the titular actor, has not only one of the longest list of credits we've covered, but the longest amounts of time. He got his start as a radio actor in his homeland of Canada at the age of 11. His roles from child and young adulthood led to him moving to New York and expanding his work from the stage and radio to television and movies. Besides roles like Michael Chambers in the iconic To Serve Man episode of Twilight Zone... and roles on Perry Mason, Bonanza, Bewitched, The Debbie Reynolds Show, Lamb Chop's Special Hanukkah, Murder, She Wrote, Designing Women, Voices on the Adventures of Batman, and A Revisiting Will Have in a Few Seasons, he was best known as Cecil Colby on Dynasty. As partner to Joan Collins' iconic Alexis Cartwright, he suffered the same fate as many of Rose's lovers. After a heart attack in the sack, Alexis arrived at the hospital to find her man was actually doing okay. So, of course... They got married right there. Once married, Cecil booted everyone out of the room and then laid into Alexis, triggering the remainder of that heart attack and giving us one hell of a hospital death scene. What? Oh. Oh. Cecil! Cecil, what's wrong? Doctor! Doctor! Darling, what's wrong? I have an I have a fun fact. Ooh, hi Coco. What's your fun fact about Lloyd? Well, he has a uh, he has a son who is also an actor. His name is Hart Bachner, and he played a character named Ellis in the original Die Hard movie. And he's the like slick yuppie with the beard 
who's like doing cocaine. Yep. He's trying to like sleep with John McClane's wife. And he is, I think he's shot in the face. Spoilers. I think you're right. Well, I mean, you're definitely right about Hart. Um, and that's funny to imagine because Lloyd doesn't seem that old in the episode. So you would think his son would be fairly young, but his son is like my mom's age. So yeah, he was in his 30s uh, in Die Hard and he is a scumbag. He looks like ultimate nine or ultimate 80s guy. His dad did voice work for the Batman cartoon series through the 90s and Hart, his son, actually worked on Batman Mask of the Phantasm as a voice as well. So they both did Batman cartoon voices. Bat fact. <laughs> Grabbing and kissing Dorothy's hand sends her into a sort of coma slash speaking in tongues state, unable to say something to the effect of, look, Rose, our actor is here and he has kissed my hand. Dorothy continues to grunt and bleat as Sophia introduces the English teacher to the actor. Welcoming a kiss on the hand, Sophia introduces herself as Linda Ronstadt and excuses her outfit as a costume for the play she's currently working in. Linda Ronstadt, a name I've always struggled with, but music I grew up with, Linda was a genre-bending artist who, for health reasons, sadly can no longer perform. But she gave us elder millennials the saddest song from American Tale, Somewhere Out There, along with all sorts of rock and country, English and Spanish blended hits through the 60s and 70s. Her backup band ended up becoming a little group you may know as the Eagles. Besides her hits like Don't Know Much with Aaron Neville, You're No Good, and Just One Look, there was Blue Bayou, the lullaby my mom always sang to me. The Pirates of Penzance is a comedy opera from 1879. It features pirates and, yes, costumes, which would allow Sophia to blend right in. Dorothy, now back from the dead, realizes her mother is being an embarrassment and grabs her, whipping her out of the room. Blanche keeps her composure slightly better than Dorothy, but in her own horny way. With a deepened voice and an extended hand, Blanche introduces herself and, without letting go, introduces Rose, who shares her kiss with Blanche's still-not-released hand. Blanche also introduces him, properly this time, to Dorothy, who is hovering a mere inch behind him. As the group makes everyone uncomfortable and hot, Patrick takes control of the room, humbling himself when the girls continue to woo and grovel. Quoting the Russian theater practitioner Konstantin Stanislavsky, he says, There are no small parts, only small actors, meaning every part is important in its own way, but the smallness comes from the pettiness of the actors themselves feeling that those roles are invalid. Making a small actor joke about Hervé Velichez, who was best known for his roles in The Man with the Golden Gun and Fantasy Island, it's his notable height of 3 foot 10 that gives us the rose provided oh boy here. Fun fact, the Paris-born actor actually got his start in painting as a way to cope with the bullying he was facing in school. He was actually the youngest artist ever to have his work shown at the Museum of Paris. His life story is told in the biopic, my dinner with Hervé. So a couple of years after we did it again, yeah. because my look changed when I got older. Right, where? <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you where, but... <laughs> a metaphor or figure of speech is symbolic and usually not literal. It's a type of speech, not rose, a type of language. Deciding to take Mr. Vaughn on a theater tour, the girls start to bicker as to who would get the honor. Blanche feels it should be her since she's performed the most there. 
Dorothy, assuming she means a certain type of oral performance that ain't opera, tells her performances in the parking lot are not valid, so she should do it. Rose doesn't have an argument. She just wants to. But Patrick doesn't have time. He's off to his next big meeting for an upcoming role as a tangerine in a commercial. How fancy. Giving us another oh boy, as fruit is no longer a term used in regards to homosexuals, Blanche asks if Pat has ever been a fruit. He hasn't, but has been given many offers through his years in musical theater. Oh boy. Patrick leaves the room and leaves the girls with hope as he expects each of them to read for the role of the leading lady. On stage the next day, say 2.18 p.m., Dorothy is taking her stab at playing with Patrick. In her Beetlejuice meets Haunted Mansion uniform collared shirt, she embraces her dream man while giving us a mediocre southern accent. Rudely, Rose and Blanche are off to the side snickering at her performance and the line, you're the prettiest girl in the county. Even though it's just an audition, an actual kiss is involved in each performance. Next, it's Blanche's turn in one of the most iconic moments of the show. Wearing her red and blue flowered pattern combo with a stunning red undershirt, she first turns away when her name is called. Then, with a dramatic fling of her jacket, her very large, very fake bosoms are revealed, earning a raucous response from the audience. With her tight bosoms that are definitely holding more than the average tire pressure of 33 pounds per square inch, Blanche swings her way across the stage into Patrick's arms. With him as her big spoon, Busty, I mean Josie, does better with her accent, but the acting is terrible. And I love when actors play bad actors well. Then, when it comes time for the passionate kiss, the pressure betwixt the two of them builds, which makes her breasts explode and deflate. Not to worry, her other set of boobs can handle a lot more roughhousing. I really enjoyed that, um, even though that clip is shown in like every commercial, every clip show, every everything, that you haven't seen it and you really uh you gave us quite the guffaw while watching sitting among the gals we're treated to ruth cohen ruth cohen was the queen of extras acting she only worked on seven programs vip ncis malcolm in the middle life among the cannibals dharma and greg golden girls and her biggest role seinfeld I say that was her biggest role because besides the main characters of Jerry, Elaine, George, and Kramer, Ruth was in more episodes than anyone else. That's because she played the waitress at Monk's Diner. Her credits are lower because she only had a few lines through the years, but that's not a bad decade of work, and she's also considered the fifth Seinfeld. <laughs> Finally, the time has come to announce the cast for the play. Taking the lead is disappointingly, shockingly, Phyllis Hammerow. I like to think it was a fix. Maybe she knew that he needed to get out of town for a while, so she offered him a role in exchange for her getting the lead. Pissed, the girls grab their things and leave. Well, not all of their things. Forgetting her purse, Blanche makes her way back on the stage where she encounters Patrick, or seeing as she views him as a backstabber, Judas. And he checks in on her. She wants an explanation as to why the other woman got the role and she didn't. But that frustration is quickly quelled when Pat asks her out to dinner. Elated, Blanche shares that she will be sharing this info with the girls. Oh, but just one moment. Patrick is a big star with an ugly divorce in the public eye, and it's all getting quite messy. The last thing he needs is to be seen in public with a new lover. 
Blanche gets it, and sealing her secret with a kiss, she leaves Biff-Boff behind. Looking for her friend, Rose makes her way to the stage just as Blanche leaves to the side of it. With her real boobs, she too gets wooed and wants to tell everyone, but again, blah blah, secret people magazine, blah blah. So with a 10 p.m. dinner, which is absolutely outrageous, she's set to have her date with him, two hours after Blanche does. Scurrying off, a lost Dorothy is now up. She's getting the closing shift of a midnight dinner. Hubba hubba. Watching a taxi leave the house, we're back on Richmond Street to find an all-blue Blanche coming in the door, followed by Patrick. They've been seeing each other for a week now, and it has been lovely. So lovely, she wants to tell her friends. While Patrick feels the same, he knows the timing still isn't right, but when it is, he'll declare his love in the sky. Having him sit on the couch with her, Blanche starts to make a confession. She's flawed. Throwing herself across his lap, he looks into her eyes to find not only sleep crusties, but a flaw in her iris. This, of course, was all just an elaborate form of foreplay, and just as they are about to kiss, the door opens to reveal Dorothy in her own blue ensemble, shocked to see Patrick on the couch with Blanche. Coming up with a lie a bit too quickly, Blanche explains Patrick was helping her with her lines, except that doesn't work as Dorothy knows that she doesn't have any lines. Coming up with an even bigger lie even faster, Patrick explains they've added a stunt to the show, which gives us another moment for appreciating Rue McClanahan's physical comedy skills. Resuming their position on the couch, Patrick then flings Blanche onto his lap before rolling her onto the floor, and it works perfectly. Then, in a moment that's kind of weird and really should have received more of a laugh as to lessen the weirdness, Blanche leaves, explaining that she'll be practicing it on the lawn. Angry, Dorothy demands to know what is happening between Patrick and Blanche. Not falling for Patrick's Stan-inspired BS of wanting to be with Dorothy but having been suckered into working with Blanche, Dorothy pushes him away. You just found out I live here. How could you have been here for me? But the sociopath responding with, and she believed it, makes it all better for Dorothy and she falls into his arms. Embracing one another, the pair gush about how wonderful their week has been, and again, Dorothy just wants to tell everyone. But before he can say something about hiring an airplane, there's a sound at the door, and he drops Dorothy faster than theaters dropped Evan Hansen. Plot slam. slam. Entering in a pink sweater and colorful collared shirt, it's Rose making the racket. Bewildered, she asks why Dorothy is coming up from the floor. Since Dorothy isn't quite exactly as good of a liar as they are, she says she's looking for a contact. But Rose knows she doesn't wear them. Ah, but she's actually looking for Patrick's contact. He just happened to come across Dorothy somewhere, and he mentioned that he needed to clean his contact. And since she doesn't wear contacts, she of course has a surplus of contact solution, which he could then use on his lens. Playing along, Dorothy finds the lens and takes it to her bathroom to be cleaned. When Rose finally catches on that there's something weird about Patrick's questions, he quickly kisses her hard to change the subject. Off he goes, but before leaving, he confirms his 1045, hop in the trunk of my car when I pull up behind the theater, date with Rose, and sort of confirms his dates with Blanche and Dorothy. Man, it's one thing to date multiple people, but to keep doing it on the same night? I mean, I would think Blanche alone would warrant her own weekend. Covering up their clandestine plans with See You at the Theater, Patrick has one more act to put on, putting in the found contact lens. 
which he does very dramatically after walking into the door, you know, due to being blinded from the lack of a contact. Back to the stage, it's opening night. Dressed adorably in summer dresses and cardigans, the ladies are ready to perform, but first want to see their boyfriend. Rose even went so far as to bring him a rose for the celebration. Blanche, being greedy and sometimes pretty awful, wants to get the Rose credit, so she makes up a superstition that someone named Rose should never give you a rose, especially on opening night. Handing Patrick the rose, Blanche gets all the credit while Rose wishes her name was Violet. Before the Rose drama can get as hot as The Bachelor, there's breaking news. The sheriff has the flu, and only one person fits the costume. That's when we get our first look at Sheriff Zbornak. With her beer belly and suspenders, her androgyny is really spectacular. Pulling Dorothy to the side, Patrick and Sheriff leave behind Rose and Blanche to talk about how great Patrick is, especially his back rub. Showing up with a Rose of her own, we finally get to meet Phyllis Hammerow, and she's in the same position as the girls. She's been dating Patrick all week, and she just has to tell someone. Janet Carroll, a.k.a. Phyllis Hamero, got her start on the stage. After years singing across Broadway, Janet made her big screen debut in 1983 as Tom Cruise's mother in Risky Business. From there, the roles kept coming. Knight Rider, Hill Street Blues, Designing Women, Empty Nest, Boy Meets World, Matlock, Married with Children, Melrose Place, Enough, Law and & Order, and uh, La La. She went on to use her singing talents to release three albums and had worked on two additional albums, but she was unable to finish them before passing away from brain cancer in 2012. No, I never saw them at all there was you. After hearing the news, the girls can only do one thing, call Phyllis a liar. Then in unison, they say, because, because he's, he's been, been seeing me. me. And now they know. He's been seeing everyone. The curtain lifts. Center stage. Spotlight. Patrick. Patrick, a.k.a. Biff the Drifter and his accompanying Bobo, start giving us the monologue, setting the stage at the 4th of July picnic. Phyllis makes her way on stage and she gives us a little continuity blooper. When she violently thwacks open her fan, it actually breaks in two. Being a professional, the show went on and it looks like it might have even been done on purpose. It even gets a laugh from the audience. But when they cut back and Phyllis is in the background, her fan is whole again. It's okay if you never caught that. I too was always too nervous B was going to whack herself in the face with that baton. Having had enough and in the middle of a fight, where once again the girls are accusing one another of being the backstabbers, Blanche and Rose spill onto the stage, causing a ruckus. With Dorothy still unaware of Patrick's cheating ways, she makes eyes at him while saying her lines. As Blanche and Rose continue to quarrel in the corner, Blanche finally realizes that Rose isn't lying and that Patrick is the one lying to all of them. Well, that does it. The Southern Belle is no longer going to sit idly by and let this man get away with such egregious behaviors. So speaking out of line, Blanche stands up and yells, You, saw are a dirtbag! Uh. Before blaming her outburst on the heat. From behind the scenes, Dorothy asks what the hell is wrong with the girls. That's when she learns all about Patrick's performances. He's trash, dirt, scum, geflugenhagen, the worst kind of person, one that parks in a handicapped spot, Boat or car, 
That's pretty low. You're a dirtbag! Well, all of this just does it for Blanche, and she is going to let Patrick have it. As Phyllis, still enamored with her lover, and Patrick continue the scene, Blanche makes one of her own by calling him out. Side note, this is one of my favorite looks for Blanche. It's so youthful, but still appropriate, flattering, colorful, fun, sexy, demure. It's a good one, and I'd love to have it. Thank you. Now Phyllis knows. Now everyone knows. And as every hand goes up on stage as being part of this whole little love triangle, it's clear why he had to triple book his evenings. In true Southern fashion, Blanche is ready to get a rope and hang him. Patrick sees that he has done wrong. But was it so wrong? They all had a good time, even Ed. Passing away just six months ago, Frank Burney, a.k.a. the stage manager Ed, got his start back in 1977. Some of the more notable of his 120 roles were on Arrested Development, Grimm, Angie Tribeca, New Girl, Silicon Valley, Key and Peele, The Office, Six Feet Under, Critters 2, Mr. Mom, Fantasy Island, and, of course, La La. Pulling out all of the names, let's talk about some of the slang that is thrown at Patrick. A carpetbagger is a term usually reserved for politics. Newly elected New York Mayor Eric Adams is kind of a good example, as he is believed to reside in New Jersey, but ran in New York. Not having local connections but running for office makes him a carpetbagger. Scallywag, while normally used in its casual meaning of basically a rascal or a troublemaker, actually has some oh-boy origins. During what was called the Reconstruction Era of the South, which was post-Civil War when slavery and the Confederacy were abolished, Republicans who were working with the North to help with the Reconstruction were called scallywags by the Democrats in the South who disapproved. My, how times and parties have changed. Joining together instead of tearing each other apart, the ladies gang up on Patrick and point out that, sure, while their time together was fun, you lied and disrespected everyone. With a boot from the sheriff and a promise to never have his hair washed by Blanche again, Patrick is off the stage. While this made the play about a five-minute affair, the performances fit each character so well and it went so flawlessly, the crowd which all of the actors had forgotten about, loved it and gave them what we can only imagine was a standing ovation. The actors, now powerful and over the heartache, all take their bows. Coming in the house feeling down, Dorothy and Blanche plop on the couch as Rose shares that the five-minute show, while loved, did warrant the audience getting their money back. But that isn't what they feel bad about. By the way, as naughty as Titmouse sounds, it's actually just a small songbird in North America. <laughs> Sorry to, to disappoint. What they're sad about is feeling humiliated after what Patrick did. But maybe they can all get some help from Blanche as to how to cope with feeling like cheap used trash. Unwilling to offer advice, Blanche can only threaten Rose with a painfully hot then cold shower when she flushes the toilet while Rose is bathing. Dorothy, not being very progressive here, feels like it's the women who are to blame for falling for his act. But he was the liar. He was the one that forced you to keep it a secret. There shouldn't be blame towards anyone but him. As mad as they all are, the ladies still find themselves feeling fondness towards Patrick. He had such a skill at making them feel special, meeting each of their needs, making Blanche feel young, making Dorothy feel beautiful, making Rose feel smart. And just like the powerful wizard in Oz, Patrick put on one hell of an act. 
Okay, fun random fact. In the same year of this episode, which features a play based at a picnic, Rue McClanahan starred in the Showtime play Picnic, a movie about a play based at a picnic. In it, she worked alongside some of our other favorites, Coco, like Jennifer Jason Lee, Beth Grant, and Conchata Farrell. Farrell? Farrell. Yeah, who just... Uh, she just recently passed away, didn't she? She did. Legend, great, all of them. Yes. Uh, who was the Who was the second person you said? Beth Grant. Oh, the greatest. Donnie Darko, Sparkle Motion, Speed. Speed. When someone gets played by a player, not a play kind of player, but a player kind of player, it's easy to misplace the blame and guilt. Sure, you want to be mad at your friend who was also involved, but if she didn't know, she's not to blame. You want to be mad at yourself, but you didn't know. When someone isn't being honest with you or isn't providing a full picture, there's no one to blame but them. The takeaway from today's episode shows that when, especially women, come together and combine their strength and bravery to stand up for what's right instead of turning against each other, letting the bad guy get away with his actions, you can kick that dirtbag right out of the community picnic. Hmm, seems applicable to like every aspect of life right now. Pretty interesting. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we talk near-death experiences in Before and After. Unfortunately, there isn't an actual Captain Jack Shifu Shanty. I would like the actual release date. It was a summer blockbuster of June 25th, 1993. Oh, thank God. Okay, thank God. I was 13. So, you know, I was too old to be going to see that in the theater. (laughs) (laughs) Coco out. Yeah, 42. Happy birthday just two days ago. Boom. Quadruple OG. That's right. Rose, recognizing the getup, asks if it's from CJSS, Captain Jack's seafood shanty. And the cheap stuff you can throw around in your friends' faces. <laughs> That's true. In a celebratory manner, even if you have nothing to celebrate. Except for the cheap champagne. It's a good prank, and it's a great way to burn your friends' eyes. It's a wonderful way to goof on some bums. Making his way out to go play a banana. <laughs> I was kind of high when I wrote this, so I was like, this will be funny and it will totally work. And then it didn't work. What what was it? Well, because he's not. He's leaving to go play a tangerine. And I thought you would correct me. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Not today, babe. (laughs) What were we watching just just recently that was like so dorky? Lots of things usually. It wasn't Jeopardy. I feel like it was something this morning. I was like, wow, this is... Oh, I was... I put on Universal Studios stunt oh, shows. Oh, yes, you did. From my youth for like a half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't go out to a late dinner. I got up early and watched some old VHSs of stunt shows from Universal Hollywood. I'm quite tired. To be clear, it was on YouTube. <laughs> These are not my personal VHS tapes. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bark. I'm just saying, like, I I know I'm not 100% stupid. I wasn't helping you because I think you're stupid. But maybe you are (laughs) the way you talk to me. Can you imagine how upset your tummy would be if you ate restaurant food for, like, 
three times a night yeah, every yeah, night. Yeah, triple dinners every night for a week. <laughs> it's amazing he was able to, I mean, one, put those jeans on that he was wearing. Yeah. And two, like, stand upright. He should well, be doubled over. He works it off. But that's awful, too. <laughs> Gonna get, go eat a blooming onion and then bang. Crikey. Uh, anything else before I go into closing? No, I think I've done enough. <laughs> Fair. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.